from the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio. This is In Black America. I was walking down the street downtown with my high school teacher who was advisor to the senior class, and we were buying, trying to buy some uh, material for uniforms for our play. And I saw the headline saying, Supreme Court says segregation in schools no more. And I said to her, Ms. Hawkins, does that mean that next year all the children are going to go to school together? And she said, not so fast, Mary Frances. Not so fast. <laughs> it's not going to happen that fast. Dr. Mary Frances Berry, the Geraldine R. Siegel Professor of American Social Thought, Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania, former chairwoman of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, and author of History Teaches Us to Resist, How Progressive Movements Have Succeeded in Challenging Times, published by Beacon Press. Berry has spent over six decades as an activist in various movements first protesting the Vietnam War, then advocating for a free South Africa and the Civil Rights Movement. In her latest book, History Teaches Us to Resist, Berry begins with President Roosevelt's refusal to prevent discrimination in the defense industry during World War II. Berry provides historical examples that protest is an essential element of politics and that progressive movements can and will flourish even in perilous times. I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, History Teaches Us to Resist with Dr. Mary Frances Berry in Black America. Protest is an essential ingredient of politics. I believe that. You hear politicians all the time and those who support them, and all of us go out and tell people to vote. We're always talking about, make sure you vote. And people died so you could have the vote. Vote, 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 like your life depended on it. Yes, people should vote. But if you vote and that's all you do, the politicians will be in office and they will not be held accountable. You have to not only vote, but you have to hold people accountable. Politicians love to have you go vote for them. That's what they want you to do. They want to get elected. They want to get reelected and so on. Dr. Mary Frances Berry has been a trailblazer for most of her life. Since her college years at Fisk and Howard University, Barry has been one of the most visible activists in the cause for civil rights, gender equality, and social justice in this country. During her time studying to earn her Ph.D. in law degree at the University of Michigan, she challenged American involvement in the Vietnam War. Barry served as chairwoman of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. She also was chancellor, the first woman to head a major research university serving at the University of Colorado at Boulder. In 1977, President Carter named her Assistant Secretary for Education. Barry has long been a person of conviction, and those convictions are evident in her service to the public and private sectors. In her latest book, History Teaches Us to Resist, Barry truly believes that resistance is the cornerstone of democracy. In Black America recently spoke with Barry from WWNO Radio in New Orleans. Where do I find the energy? Let's see. I find it from the disgust and the anger mixed with hope about all the stuff that happens, you know, because every time I think I'm passing the torch, and I try to pass the torch all the time, I'm always handing the torch over to some younger people, and every time I hand it to them, they hand it back to me. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> but it's because if we were able to overcome the... Um, 
the, the, the racism and all of the evil that has been embedded in American society so that some people are not even aware of the fact that it's been embedded in them, then we wouldn't have to do all this stuff. You know, one, one wouldn't have to be protesting and talking about things and all the rest of it. But somehow we seem not to have been able to, um, to unearth it and get rid of it. Uh, uh, a friend of mine was talking to me today about their uh, partner who is a police officer and has been for a number of years in various cities, white guy, police officer, and that he's a good guy. He tries to do the right thing. And he's so disturbed because he says he doesn't understand why police officers are regarded the way they are and why some of his colleagues where he's been actually do things that don't make any sense, <laughs> you know, like attacking people and beating people and shooting people. He just doesn't he just doesn't get it. And I told him that it's because they're afraid. They have, you know, when they see certain people, they uh they automatically assume that something negative is going to happen to them before they even make an inquiry about it. And it's just a knee-jerk reaction which one has to somehow educate people out of. Dr. Berry, for this new generation, for those that aren't familiar with you, tell us what was life like growing up in Nashville? Well, when I grew up in Nashville, one way to tell it to you is that when Brown against the Board of Education was decided, the anniversary of it was yesterday. I was graduating from high school, segregated black high school, Pearl High School uh, in Nashville. And I was walking down the street downtown with my high school teacher who was advisor to the senior class. And we were buying, trying to buy some uh, material for uniforms for our play. And I saw the headline saying, Supreme Court says segregation in schools no more. And I said to her, Ms. Hawkins, does that mean that next year all the children are going to go to school together? And she said, not so fast, Mary Frances, not so fast. <laughs> it's not going to happen that fast. And what we used to do is walk to school a uh, long way. You know, every older person can tell you stories about how many miles they walked to school or whatever, and they had to ride a mule part of the way, you know, all those old stories. But, in fact, we did, and we would look in the windows of the high school that the white kids went to and see all the equipment and all the nice things they had, and then we would go to our school <laughs> and look at the things that we didn't have. So that tells you something. And it was a day. We had the usual, the, the water fountains with colored and white on them. You go downtown to the movie, and you climbed up in the crow's nest, we called it, way up, uh, four or five, up as high as you could go uh, in order to go down the alley and go up there. And I saw my first movie, movie there, um, uh, musical, uh, Singing in the Rain, uh, which um, had the dancing and singing in it. I was just like, oh, my goodness, I was so impressed. But those things happened. Or if you wanted something to eat and you went downtown to try to shop, first of all, you couldn't try on clothes in the store or shoes. And people ask me, well, how did you know what to buy <laughs> if you couldn't try them on? Well, you had to guess at what you were getting. And if you wanted to eat, there was, I remember there was this crystal hamburger place. And you go and you stand outside the counter at the end and ask for what you wanted and wait and then they would come and give it to you, and you would go out and stand on the street and eat it. 
Uh, it was that kind of. And the one story that I think brings it home more than anything else, we had a guy in Nashville who would come by the yard where we played when I was a little kid with my cousins. Uh, and today it looks small, but when I was little, it looked really big. And we'd be playing in the summertime, and he would drive up on his motorcycle and run up to us kids, and we'd start crying. And then he would say, what day is it? And if you didn't say what if you whatever you said would be wrong, because if you said Monday, he would say, call me Mr. Bundy. And then he would try to run over you with the motorcycle. And then he would go off back down. And I remember the first time I saw him, I ran to one of my older cousins crying and said, who is that man and why did he do that? And he said, he's a policeman. I thought to myself, if that's a policeman, <laughs> a policeman is a very bad thing. I found out later that he often went by the stoop where he would see black people sitting on their stoops and ask them what day it was and do the same kind of shenanigans because he had the power to do so. So that tells you a little bit about what growing up was like. You attended Fish University. For a year, and then I went to Howard. I understand philosophy and history, but how did chemistry get in the mix? Uh, my high school teacher told me I liked history. She was a history teacher. And she said, you cannot major in history when you go to college because you'll never get a job <laughs> and you'll starve to death. <laughs> she said, you need to major in some kind of science, like you tell people now they should do STEM programs. So I majored in chemistry. And I hated it, but I majored in it. So I did chemistry, and I did some at Fisk, and then when I went to Howard, and I went all the way through organic chemistry, all the chemistry through organic, and all the, you know, the biology courses and all those science things. And then one summer, when I was finishing organic at Howard, in the lab all day and the class all day, you did all the credits, 10 credits in the summer, no air conditioning, I was so, I was suffocating. I said, that's the end of chemistry. I won't tell her that I've changed my major, but I think I'm going to change it. So I changed it to philosophy, because I like philosophy class, because she didn't tell me I couldn't major in philosophy. She told me I couldn't major in history. You went to my neck in the woods, Ann Arbor University of Michigan. Yes. Law degree and a PhD. Yes, sir. When did you sleep? I didn't because I worked in the lab at St. Joe's Hospital with all that science I took. I was qualified to be a medical laboratory technologist, and I ran a lab in the evening in that hospital. It was a 525-bed hospital, and I ran the lab in the evening and went to school uh, in the daytime. So I guess I slept when I fell asleep. When you were at the University of Michigan, was that the entree of your activism? Uh, I was in the anti-war movement, and I write about this in the book, History Teaches Us to Resist. Uh, not only was I in the anti-war movement, but I lied my way into credentials to become a reporter one summer. Uh, I wanted to go to Vietnam to see what was going on for myself, and so I got uh, newspapers around there and the, the campus newspaper to make up a hundred and something thousand subscribers, and the Defense Department agreed to give me credentials thinking I was a reporter. <laughs> so I went to Vietnam, 
and traveled all over the country and uh, and wrote dispatches every uh, week, uh, telexed them back, talked to people, the hometown news, had some very exciting, interesting, dangerous assignments. And by the after the first week, each one of my uh, telexes began, today I am in wherever I was, and we're not winning the war. I found it interesting that up until now, no one, to my knowledge, had put our conflict with Vietnam in perspective, being that everyone may have thought that the war began under the Kennedy administration, but it was back when Eisenhower was president. Absolutely. And the origins of it can go all the way back to when the French were in you know, Vietnam and when they lost. And then Eisenhower started the training and all the rest. And the commitment, it's like much of what we hear about places where we have still have soldiers today and military people, where the war just goes on and on and on. And sometimes you can even forget how long it's been going on, whether it's Afghanistan or whether it's Iraq or wherever it is. You just, you just, you just don't, unless you're in it and getting killed or getting wounded, how long are people in your family, how long this thing has been going on. And so the war had been going on for a very long time. And it just continued and continued. And we got more and more and more and more uh, involved. And very often the soldiers uh, who were called grunts, the young infantry guys out in the field, very young people, they had no idea really why they were there except that they were there because they were in the army or whatever they were doing. Uh, but the whole, the larger concept of, you know, what is it about this war that we're doing? I remember, and I wrote about this in the book, a young man uh, who said to me uh, one day, he said, I notice you write in a little notebook everything I say. You write it down. Other reporters come by and they talk to me and they never write down anything I say. He said, how are they going to remember me be, no one will ever remember me. He he knew he was he expected he was going to get killed, and he said no one will ever remember me because he doesn't. I tell him my name, he doesn't write it down. They don't write down anything. His but you wrote it down. He said I like that you wrote it down. I said look. I write things down because I'm not really a reporter. I'm just pretending to be a reporter, and I'm here, and I'm an activist, and I want the war to end. Those guys can remember. They don't need to write them things down. They're experienced. I said, they will remember you. You will be remembered, so don't worry about it. But the sadness in his eyes and the thought that he just knew that his number was coming up, and he wasn't sure why. I found it interesting. You begin the book. During the Roosevelt administration, uh, there's race discrimination uh, in the armed forces and how that correlated to what was going on when the majority of the troops in Vietnam were African-American. Right. Large numbers of them were African-Americans, disproportionately African-Americans. There's this poem that was written by this great young black poet at the time, a guy named Norman Jordan, uh, who died recently. And Norman wrote this poem and says, Hey, Whitey, we're on to you, killing red power, yellow power with black power, two birds with one stone. <laughs> and it was uh, his uh, lament about the war and about the sacrifice and what he saw as a disproportionate contribution of uh, black soldiers. But lots of people uh, were abused and died, and a lot of them, some people who I interviewed, did die. 
in that war, and most of them had no real conception of why it wasn't like World War II, and we know you know somebody attacked uh, Pearl Harbor or whatever. Uh, conceptually, what was really going on, and why it just dragged on and 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 on. I remember also seeing up on the DMZ between uh, North and South Vietnam, the last outposts where the Marines were, and I was up there with them at Contien, and down below us, the, the engineers uh, were digging and building a fence because McNamara wanted a fence built across between the on the border because he thought that would stop the Viet Cong and end the war which was ridiculous, but they were out there in the hot sun digging and digging and getting shot at and snipe. Every time you look up, somebody was getting hit, and they were just digging and digging and putting up the fence and putting up the fence because that was what they had to do. And the whole thing was so sad. I mean, there was a terrible sadness uh, the entire time. Dr. Berry, you talk about the escalation uh, of the war predicated on bad intel, and obviously, we're not learning anything from history. Uh, we got involved in the Iraqi war, bad intel. Yep. And it seems like everything goes full circle. Yes, we get bad intel. The American people are bereft of real knowledge about what was going on. For example, even when the uh, anti-war movement and the military uh, success of our uh, troops who were dying and getting wounded and so on, maimed, uh, brought the North Vietnamese willing to sit down at the peace table in 68. Not only did we succeed in getting Johnson not to run again, but they were willing to come to the peace conference and make peace. And Nixon then monkey wrenched the process, had one of his guys go and deal with the Chinese, uh, the people from Taiwan and Hong Kong who he knew, and have them tell the North Vietnamese, if you just hold out until I get elected, I'll give you a better deal and did that secretly in order to blow up the peace process because he said that if you make peace, the Democrats are going to win the election, and we don't want them, I don't want them to win. And so I'll give you a better deal, please. And so he then, the war went on for two more years, three, longer than that, and more and more people died and more and more refugees and all the rest of it because he wanted to make sure he won the election, you see. And the public didn't know anything about that until recently. And I didn't know. And many of us who were in the anti-war movement didn't know until recently. We thought we had somehow failed because the war kept going on. So the Iraq War, the protest against it, which I write in the book, started too late here. And they started late because we didn't have the information. And it wasn't until Colin Powell was at the UN and talked about the weapons of mass destruction and told those lies that they had him tell <laughs> that the anti-war movement really got momentum. By then it was too late. I mean, it had been going on, the war had been going on uh, for too long. So uh, lack of intelligence, which is true now, we still have. Think about Libya, for example. Gaddafi had already given up his uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, he had paid off the debts. He had uh, said uncle. He had cried uncle, more or less. So what do we do? We start a war there. We create all of this disorder and chaos, and we kill him. And then we have all these refugees <laughs> coming across Libya, going into the Mediterranean, into uh, Greece and to Italy and up disrupting their democracy 
and their economy. And then we do the same thing in Syria. We say we're going into Syria. We don't really go in to win anything. We don't put enough investment there. We create more refugees. And then we have them all go to Europe. And then Angela Merkel is hanging on by, you know, a string trying to keep power because she got all those refugees there, which was not a bad thing. It's just that we don't think and we, the American people, don't have the information in order to make decisions that might influence uh, our leaders to perhaps go in a different direction. If you're just joining us, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and you're listening to In Black America from KUT Radio. And we're speaking with Dr. Mary Frances Berry, the Geraldine R. Siegel Professor of American Social Thought and Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania, former chairwoman of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, and author of her latest book, History Teaches Us to Resist How Progressive Movements Have Succeeded in Challenging Times. Dr. Berry, at this point, obviously you thought it was important, but why is resistance essential to the American political process? Because protest is an essential ingredient of politics. I believe that. You hear politicians all the time and those who support them and all of us go out and tell people to vote. We're always talking about make sure you vote. And people died so you could have the vote. Vote, 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 vote like your life depended on it. Yes, people should vote. But if you vote and that's all you do... The politicians will be in office, and they will not be held accountable. You have to not only vote, but you have to hold people accountable. Politicians love to have you go vote for them. That's what they want you to do. They want to get elected. They want to get reelected and so on. But the, the, the people who make the most, uh, uh, more demands, you know, Frederick Douglass said that, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has. It never will. Okay? So if you don't, have some form of protest and to make sure that your voice is heard and look to see what the leaders are doing and get as much information as you can and mobilize if you need to to change them, there won't be any change. When we changed American policy toward uh, South Africa in the anti-apartheid movement, in which a lot of people and some of them out there listening were involved with, The people in South Africa ask us to get sanctions passed by the American Congress and to stop trading and that that would help them to get their freedom. And so there was a great mobilization, not just us in Washington and all of the Shell Oil Company, the coal, all these people, but on the college campuses uh, everywhere. People were protesting about this and demanding that a law be passed by Congress so that there would be sanctions. Ronald Reagan, who was president, was absolutely opposed to the whole idea. He said that if you have, you know, they're better off the way they are now. You know, anyway, the people who want to get into apartheid are communists. You know, people always say that everybody is a communist if they if they oppose uh, what they're uh, interested in or an outside agitator, one or the other, as they used to say in the South. Uh, but we were able to get sanctions passed. And then when he vetoed them, well, we kept on protesting and got them passed over his veto. Even though today when people talk about Reagan, they talk about what a popular man he is, a popular president. Most of them don't know anything about him except there's an airport named after him 
in Washington and that every state in the Union has some kind of monument to him. They don't know anything about his anti-apartheid. They don't know anything about his not talking about the AIDS crisis until Rock Hudson died. He wouldn't even mention the word AIDS, even though it was a crisis in this country. And there was medication that should have been made available more cheaply to people so that they wouldn't be dying all over the place. They don't know any of that about him. But if you don't protest, if you don't make your voice heard, if you don't mobilize and you don't organize, then you won't be able to hold politicians accountable. You can hold them accountable if you do. So your vote is very important. Electoral politics, very important. Running for office is very important. But that's not the end all and be all of the game. It's sort of like if you thought that if you tweeted something, you had done your job of protesting, and now everything should be fine, and you can go home and sit down and say, well, I made a tweet, you know. (laughs) I tweeted, hey, I I put it up on Facebook, hey. (laughs) Now, that ought to be enough. No, and you also have to show up. you got to show up and show out. And that's what you have to do to make change. Dr. Barry, through these different presidencies, how did one grassroots or organizations decide what to resist against? Well, the first thing is that there's so much evil in the world (laughs) that there's so many things that you could. First of all, you figure out what you are best able to target on. And if there are people already trying to make change and there's something egregious, you can mobilize from the base that they're working on. Like in South Africa, there were already people in South Africa who had been protesting and dying and everything else had been happening to them. People in Europe had been uh, having sanctions. The U.N. had sanctions. We, as the biggest uh, economy in the world and the most powerful nation in the world needed to come along in order to make that kind of change. The main thing, though, is that if you're going to protest, you have to have and have a movement, you have to have a simple goal. If your goal is too complicated, then it won't work. That's been the whole history of movements. You've got to say, take the March on Washington movement with A. Philip Randolph when Roosevelt was president. Uh, Historians know a lot about that movement, but I use it as an example in the beginning. So you can see that there were a long list of things that the March on Washington movement wanted. But what they did was focus on one thing, get jobs for blacks in the defense industry, which is where most of the jobs were because of the war and left the others. One of them was desegregating the armed forces, which happened after that. But focused in on that one issue, you got to have something that is simple enough and not so complex that you can't explain it to people (laughs) all at once. And that if you're asking Congress to pass something or the president to do something or somebody to do something, just target that one thing and you can organize a movement around it. Take Movements, you learn from movements that fail, too. Take the Occupy Wall Street movement. The Occupy Wall Street movement, its goals were too diffuse. It was a great movement because we learn a lot from it. We learn from movements that fail, too, so we know what to do for the next movement. you got to study movements that fail as well as those who, that succeed. But they, had, they were too diffuse. The other thing we learned from that is that their leadership, they thought it was great not to have anybody be the spokesperson or be the person the media could go to. That makes sense in that the media might try to, you know, that person might say something that undermines or you don't know or whatever. That's great. 
But in fact, the way the media operates, you got to have a spokesperson of some sort because they all want to go to somebody <laughs> and have them ask. It's the, it's the way the media operates and the way it works. And it's got to have something to fill up the airspace <laughs> to comment on what you're doing. Uh, so you learn that. The other thing you learn is, so you got to keep it simple, like we said in the anti-apartheid movement, end apartheid now, freedom now, okay? Dr. Mary Frances Berry, the Geraldine R. Siegel Professor of American Thought, Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania, and author of History Teaches Us to Resist, How Progressive Movements Have Succeeded in Challenging Times. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions as to future In Black America programs, email us at nblackamerica at kut.org. Also, let us know what radio station you heard us over. Remember to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at KUT.org. Until we have the opportunity again for technical producer David Alvarez, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.